speaking to a friend of mine who has walked a really hard road with asking God for provision for the ministry that their family has that's really flourishing. They've needed a building for their ministry for years. And two times over the period of several years, they thought God was about to provide this miraculously, and it would be snatched right out from under them at the last minute. And the last time this happened, it was snatched by a Muslim group who established a mosque in the location. It was extremely hard for them. My friend was telling me that one day she was working in the garden, and God said to her, you've stopped asking me for things. And her reply was, yes, Lord, I trust you. I really do. I believe you're good, and I understand that you will do what you will do. My prayers really are inconsequential. And she said the Lord responded with this. That is because you ask me like an adult, not like a child. <laughs> ask me like a child. So she said she started reflecting on that for a while. What does that mean? And she said, I was out in the garden for 90 minutes. She said, I was just wrestling with the Lord about this. And so she said, okay, Lord, I'm going to ask you like a child. Surprise me. Do something that blows me away, something I can't imagine. I'm going to stop asking you with the solution in mind, because that's what the Lord had said to her. Adults ask with the solution in mind. Ask like a child. And within minutes, the Lord brought a miracle into their lives. Um, but the Lord wanted to bring her to this place. Andrew Murray says in his book, Waiting on God, that often God does not answer our prayers immediately, not because our prayers are too big, but because they are too small. What we are asking is so much smaller than what he wants to do. Habakkuk is having this dialogue with God. Why is God delaying? The Babylonians have overcome them. Why does he not respond to the need of his people? Why does evil go unpunished? And this is, uh, in this dialogue, the Lord answers him in chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail, but the righteous shall live by his faith. God responds in these words, saying basically, don't abandon the vision, write the vision. Wait on my timing, because I'm never too late, and then walk by faith. God's vision is so much greater than our, than our vision, and we, just miss, we live misaligned from his vision so often. And the way we access God's vision is through faith. God wanted, uh, Habakkuk wanted God to deliver the Israelites from the Babylonians, 
God wanted to deliver the whole world. It's almost like, I, I picture it almost like this funnel, and I don't know about you guys if you've ever tried to work with a funnel and you're trying to pour something into a jar and it gets stopped up in that little section there. I feel sometimes that the Lord is, he's got this vastness and he's trying to get it through this tiny little place. And what it takes as we spend time in the presence of the Lord is he expands that little place where he's trying to pour uh, through his life. So let's start with writing the vision, as it says in this verse. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. I read lots of interpretations of this, but they all basically came up with, you know, so you can run while you're reading it, or so you can read it while you're running by. It's so plain, it's so broadly written that you can't forget it. You can't escape it. We write the vision in our hearts. We run with it, embedded in our imaginations. Well, what is the vision? I think we have to address the overall grand vision and then the smaller visions that God gives to us. But the grand vision is really in Habakkuk 1, verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. And I have to ask myself, Am I more engaged with that vision and living from that vision that God is doing a work that if I heard about it, I wouldn't believe it? (laughs) Or am I living more from the vision the news gives me every day that drives me to despair and exasperation? Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Habakkuk 2.14 is another place where he states the vision. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That's just such a statement of God winning. The earth will have nothing to say. No more complaint. It's all going to be so perfectly aligned. He's on his throne And everything is in its proper place. The earth can only be silent before him. And then God gives us smaller visions. He gives us a vision like he did that family, a facility for the work he's called us to do, the calling God's placed on us, the mission of the people under our care, a vision for our family, a new work he's implanting, imparting. All of these have their appointed time for fulfillment But as God gives them, we write them, we ingest them, we then always adjust them to the greater vision that is always secure, that God will fill the earth with his glory. These smaller visions are adjusting and shifting, but the grand vision never changes. This is how we can get into asking God with a solution already in mind. It's harder to live in the confidence that uh, God's grand vision, it's harder to live in the confidence that God's grand vision, that he will do a work that's unimaginable, that he will fill the earth with his glory, he'll fill our families with his glory, he'll fill our ministries with his glory, he'll bring us into his glory. Um, It's how that unfolds in the particulars we get into asking for such specifics that we lose sight of the glory. And we never can be fully sure how God will do that 
in our lives, how he's going to bring that into being in our spheres of influence. We have to face into the fact that our vision is always smaller than God's. And I'm not talking about that God's vision for us is more grandiose. I'd say that God's vision is deeper. It's broader. It's something that reaches beyond the request that we're making. And our vision is just clouded. We don't see clearly. We don't know as we are known. Uh, Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings is dealing with this small visioning with, in the Council of Elrond because they're all talking about how they can just get out of their present situation. Can we hide this ring? Can we dispose of it? Can we throw it into the sea? And Gandalf says, it is not our part here to take thought only for a season or a few lives of men, or for a passing age of the world. We should seek a final end of this menace, even if we do not hope to make one. And I think that's what God is constantly trying to get through to, this, to us, is you're thinking about this small thing. I'm looking at the broad implications, and I'm at work on your behalf and on that bigger vision. Can you walk with me? Can you trust me? A couple of Sundays ago, I was homesick, so I thought I would uh, try to live stream a ser service. I'm, I'm not really, never done this before. I just thought I would try. And um, I had heard uh, that a guy that I had grown up with in Brazil, André Fontana, was pastoring a church in a city outside of Sao Paulo now, uh, where I grew up. And so I went online to see if I could find his church. And I found it, and I was truly just almost paralyzed with awe as I watched him preaching and expounding the scriptures, because I knew Andrea when we were kids, um, to his obviously thriving and mission-minded church. Now, I was moved not only because he was preaching the word of God in power and with courage and with, uh, with the spirit, but because I know the backstory. When we first moved to Brazil, Andrea's family lived on our little cobblestone street in Sao Paulo, and his mother, Eliane, hated our family. And she would cross the street to avoid us wherever we went. We were American missionaries, and she hated us. And so when she'd see us coming, she would cross the other side and avoid interacting with us. Well, as soon as we heard that they were going to go to the States on uh, business, my mom jumped on that opportunity, and she reached out and invited them over for apple pie and I'm sure some very bad coffee of some sort to, to expose them to American coffee. <laughs> anyway, that cracked the door on a relationship that began to blossom. Eliani had a profound conversion while reading the Bible. She and my mother led a Bible study for nine years where Eliani would evangelize and bring all of her friends, and my mom would disciple them, and they had 90 women go through that training and discipleship for many years. Um, they prayed for her husband for 15 years. He finally came to the Lord. And then my father led a Bible study for him and all of his friends. Today, at least three uh, of the four Fontana children are in some kind of ministry. Two are pastors, one's a worship leader. My mother had a big vision of the salvation of one of our neighbors. God had a much bigger vision of hundreds of souls that would be saved through this family in, and in a church in Valinhos, Brazil, where Brazilians my parents could never have reached, are bringing the life of God into their spheres of influence. 
I remember the days when my mom would report the slights she would feel from Eliani and how painful that that was when, when she would slight her on the church, uh, on the street. That was a time to write the vision, to imagine the glory of God radiating out, radiating out and doing a thing that we could never have believed at the time. But my parents didn't reach out because they had the vision that these people would all be pastors someday. And they reached out because they had the vision that God could do something they didn't expect. Let's just do the thing he's given us to do right now. And God takes care of that bigger vision as long as we're just being faithful to the bigger vision. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, it says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And how often do we need to rehearse the promises, the vision that God will fulfill um, his glory filling the earth, him being on the throne, I know I have to do that all the time. I did just even this last week um, when Father Les was at our church, and he said that we should ask God what we should give up for Lent more than chocolate. Ask him what you should give up in your own soul. And I was sitting there, and I thought, okay, Lord, you know, what should I give up? Immediately, the Lord said, despair over America. (laughs) Is that all? And I realized that in that week, I had been living in this small vision of what God wants to do in America, discouraged, discouraged about our area, um, the, the young people that are clouded in their thinking. And the Lord said, the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. That's where I need to align myself with the vision. Encroaching Gnosticism can't prevail against the church. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. For this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you and I believe that no affliction we are in or have suffered will be able to be measured against the weight of glory? When we get there and the afflictions are put here and the glory is put here, that the glory will far outweigh them. So when we're in affliction, we have to align ourselves with that great vision that the Lord is uh, promising us that this will be fulfilled. Wait and see the deliverance of the Lord. I am the Lord and I will do it. So we write the vision. Then we wait on God's timing. And so it says there in Habakkuk 2, uh, for still the vision of God, uh, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. Literarily, that's just so interesting when it says, if it's slow, wait for it, when it just says it hastens to the end. It will surely come. It will not delay. Uh, And you just feel the tension there. It will surely come. It will not delay. It hastens. Wait. Um, But there's that sense of tension that we have to live in this place where God is still fulfilling his vision over time, and we have to wait And I hate that. I hate waiting. Um, In other words, God's timing is perfect, and we can trust it. It will not delay one second more than when God says, now, it's it's done. When I was studying natural childbirth, I learned about a term called natural alignment plateau. 
This happens in many labors in which a woman's childbirth stops progressing because certain factors haven't aligned um, that need to align, and they have to come into alignment to deliver a baby. So many factors have to come into this perfect alignment. The baby's position, the hormones that secrete, the colostrum that the baby needs for immunity right after birth, psychological adjustments that the mother has to make, baby has psychological adjustments, necessary contractions that stimulate the baby's lungs for breathing, the loosening of tendons and ligaments, and so forth. You didn't know this was so complicated, but it really is, and anyone who's been through it knows. But... We get into this place, and I've been this in this six times, where you just, why can't this happen? You know? And the tendency to speed it up always, almost always gets us into trouble, unless you're trying to, you're already in trouble, then you've got to speed it up. But the tendency when it stalls is for us to get so exasperated that we do things to bring this on, and then... Other things are, are, you know, misaligned after that. And I learned recently in, in reading that there are actual stimulation points on the head of the baby that are massaged with every contraction. And if a baby is born too fast, those points are not properly stimulated. And that's also often why they have that sensory disintegration, where they can't, their sensors are not aligned with one another. So, you know, sometimes we can't help a baby having to come too fast or whatever. We thank God for the medical science that can save a baby in distress. I've had one of those, too. Um, but there is this natural inclination in us. If this has to happen, why can't we make it happen faster? And I, I was thinking of how similar this is to our birthing things in prayer. God is bringing various and disparate things into alignment when we're praying. A person that needs to be in the right place. Someone's heart that needs to be open to a new idea. Um, Money, resources, healing in another's life, a position that's not yet open. Uh, The change in an authority's heart. A deepening of trust in the Lord. People that aren't even in the picture yet. And if we force that baby, the integration that was meant to happen as we waited will still have to be done, but at a much greater cost. We cannot despise the natural alignment plateau. We want God to force the change, but God is orchestrating a change on a much larger level, on a higher plateau to push the metaphor. That was for my brother. The natural alignment plateau Uh, for God's deliverance of Israel from the Egyptians went something like this. The Israelites had to grow to be a really large people group, right? Or they would have been wiped out as quickly as they left Egypt, the first group of marauders in the desert. A leader had to be ready, and he had to be the right leader that grew up from the inside and knew the Egyptian system, or he never would have been successful, and he needed to know uh, and be educated in Egypt, He needed to discover through failure his own inadequacies, or he wouldn't have been able to lead them. He needed to find out that God was leading him. He needed to be away in the wilderness at the mercy of God. He needed to stand up to Pharaoh over and over again, listening to God, obeying God, risking God, so that by the time he got out there, he'd practiced this a little bit. The delay of the ten plagues brought about a revelation to the Israelites, of their God. He was a God of miracles and wonders. 
It served to bring the Egyptians to such a place of exasperation that they would expel the Israelites and give them all their treasures. Take them, take them, take this, take that, which is probably what they lived off of for a long time when they were out and about. They lived off those treasures they got from the Egyptians. And think about this. The whole army of Egypt needed to be destroyed so that they would no longer be a threat for Israel. And they were killed, all of them. I went back and read it. Was that really what it said? But it says when they were crossing the Red Sea, all the chariots, all the army of um, Egypt, whatever that all means, it was a lot of them, followed them and were destroyed. And so all of this had to come into alignment for God to deliver the people of Israel and establish his, his, uh, this people of his own. And in ministry, I find this so often the case. God wants to draw me into his larger purposes, and I'm really focused on a niggling problem. Um, and he, what he cares about is orchestrating on a win on so many other levels that I can't even see. And if I'll only wait on him, he'll birth this in the right way at the right time. The irony of the waiting is that often I'm the one that's not in alignment, right? I'm the one that God's trying to change to get into alignment. We want God to force change, but not, not on us. <laughs> Don't force it on me. So God is working gently even to change our hearts. Stuart and I, believe it or not, had to wait on having children. Um, for years, we prayed for children, and some of you prayed for children with us. Um, many people prayed for us. During those years, God was working a deep healing in my own heart. He was giving me connections and networks through my work um, that benefit from us, that we benefit from even today, including Molly that I met at my job. And I wouldn't met if I, we wouldn't have been in, able to introduce her to Christian um, if I had been at home taking care of my children. Most of all, as God divested us of our sense of control, he taught us that God builds the house. And that's a very important lesson and has been for us in our family, in the church, in the diocese, on every level. Um, it is possible that we wouldn't have had some of the kids that we have if we hadn't come to the place of saying, wow, this is not our family to build. This is your family to build. This is yours. And it took that kind of waiting for us to be divested of our sense of control. Spurgeon talks of this waiting that brings about our own readiness for the blessing that we seek. And he says, perhaps you're not yet ready for that blessing. You have asked for a man's trials, a man's privileges, and a man's work. But you are as yet only a child growing up into manhood. And so your good father will give you what you ask for, but he will give it to you in such a way as to make it not a burden for you, but a blessing. If it came now, it might involve responsibilities that you could not handle. But coming by and by, you shall be well prepared for it. We don't wait passively, though, as we'll talk about in a minute. Um, and Spurgeon refers to this uh, a little later in the sermon. He talks of the muscles that we gain as we make a way for the blessing um, in waiting. He says, you have not yet won the crown but you will have to cut your way inch by inch, foot by foot, and the master is making you an athlete that wrestling with your enemies you may overcome. 
He is strengthening your muscles and tendons, sinews, and power by the arduous exercise of unanswered prayer that you may be finally useful in the future. So there is a way that as we wait on the Lord for those answers, that we are building muscle. We're building the capacity to wrestle down those things, even in our own souls, that aren't aligned with the Lord. The promised land was promised for the Israelites, but they had to fight a lot of battles to claim it. And over and over again, we see that. The Lord says, yes, this is what I'm promising you. Now, fight these battles to get there. While we wait, God hones our smaller visions. He shapes them. He remakes them. Just don't despise the wait. Seasoning happens. I wanted to learn how to make my own sauerkraut so we could get some good probiotics from it. And I called a friend, and she said, oh, it's really easy. You just put it in a crock pot overnight, and then it's, it's done in the morning. I thought, oh, it's great. I went online. I looked it up. Some people will tell you to put your cabbage in a crock pot overnight. You will never reach the benefits of the probiotics if you do that. And you know what these people told me? In the summer, plant your own cabbage. <laughs> Make sure it's an organic seed. And then when it comes to full fruition, you will set aside those cabbages for your sauerkraut. And then you will cut them up very carefully, and you will put them into jars. Now, the liquid has to be at a certain level, and you have to leave them to season. You can't let too much air in, not much bacteria. And on and on. I was just like, wow, who has this kind of time? Only God, obviously. I mean, um, but this is what I found very interesting. That says, if you have to arrest the development of the sauerkraut, you can. You can eat it after three weeks. But you will uh, not receive the full benefit. If you really want the full benefit, you have to wait three months. And it keeps going to a deeper level of probiotics. I thought, wow. All right, this summer we're planting those cabbages. But... That's the, I thought, this is just so much how it is with the Lord. If you want the full benefit, you, there are no shortcuts. Amen. If you want the full benefit, you've got to wait. And it seasons, and it goes on, and it goes on. When Stuart and I were in a series of church splits at our church, and in misery, I mean, every night was painful. Every conversation was painful. Every day I woke up just in misery. When will this pass? Dialogues in my head overnight, you know, waking up in the night. And every time I would ask the Lord to deliver me from this, he'd say, this is the trial that I have appointed for you for this time for you to grow in leadership. It's like, oh, endure it. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Don't let these things overtake you. Just walk with me. And that waiting and that walking is what gives us the full life benefit. We have a wood stove, and it's easy to think that when you throw the newspaper in there and the kindling and it blazes up, you've got a great fire. It can warm ourselves. This is great. If you turn around, though, it's dead in, you know, three minutes. You have to wait, and then you have to be, know exactly the time. The experienced person knows when you put on the next log. When it's ready and it's not going to be squelched by putting on another log. 
And sometimes I feel like we just have a lack of trust in the Lord, that he knows when it's time to put the next log on. He knows when the fire is ready for the next stage. And we have to walk by faith, which is the next point, in order to wait on him during this time. And, and so as we're waiting, as we're writing the vision, we're walking by faith. And I um, use the RSV for this line in here, behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, because, you know, that's just too hard to understand. And the RSV was a little plainer, behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail. This is what reveals the people that aren't in it for the long haul. The righteous shall live by his faith. 